This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. Uh, let's go back again to verse 29. And uh, now we're told by Matthew uh, that uh, the, Jesus and his disciples are leaving Jericho. Um, verse 29, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. Now let me just say this quickly because if you... If you've read the parallel passages, you may have, you may have caught this, so I just want to mention it. Um, the parallel passages are Mark 10, 46 through 52, and Luke 18, 35 through 43. There you have the same story, just an account from a different evangelist, from a different um, writer. In Matthew and Mark, we're told that they are leaving Jericho, in Luke, we're told that they're coming near Jericho. Okay? Um, I think there's a... Well, there's probably more than one explanation for that, but I think probably the simplest one is this. I mean, because this is just fact. Um, the Jericho of the Old Testament that you read about in the book of Joshua, for example, where they marched around the walls and the walls, the walls uh, fell, um, is, is not the Jericho... Of the New Testament. And it's just like today, you know, we have ruins of an old city and then a new one pops up. There were people living there, but it's just, you know, the city had basically moved. So I think what's happening here, and what many people think is what's happening here, is that Matthew and Mark are referring to the old Jericho when they say that they, um, that they went out of Jericho. And that Luke is referring to the new Jericho. In other words, they're in between the two. And Matthew and Mark are, are Starting the story by saying they're they're leaving Jericho, meaning the old Jericho, and Luke is uh, is just starting it by saying they're coming near Jericho, meaning the new Jericho. Um, matter of fact, as I was I was looking at one of the commentaries on this, brother Ron, and uh, the the commentator mentioned a town. I, I was going to remember it. And I think it's Pleasureville, Kentucky. He said there are two of them, one half mile apart. <laughs> It's amazing, isn't it? So he just used that as an example um, to, to say that, hey, we even have that today. And I know of two Sibley, Louisianas myself, um, probably about 50 or 60 miles apart, maybe a little more. But both of them are on I-20. You go east and you will, you will see two Sibley exits. And they're roughly 50, 60, 70 miles apart. And they're, they're not to the same town. So I, I think that's what is taking place here. They're leaving old Jericho and, and going toward new Jericho. And behold, verse 30 says, that's, that's the, the familiar attention get, getter. The word is, see, look, look, behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Now, um, first thing I want to talk about here is this, what I call a desperate cry. And we kind of dealt with this some this morning in Sunday school. And I, I think it is uh, the point that every sinner comes to in the salvation experience. A point of desperation. Notice these two men. And, and again, another distinction here. Uh, Mark and Luke both only mention one of the men. And Mark gives us his name, Bartimaeus. 
which means son of Timaeus. Uh, and if you read that in the Old King James, it sounds like a nursery rhyme, doesn't it? <laughs> Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the roadside begging. I've always loved that. Uh, but it's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. Not a nursery rhyme. It's a real historical account. Although, that is very poetic. Uh, it's a real historical account. Um, one of the men, at least, according to Mark, is Bartimaeus. Matthew uh, notes that there are two. And they are sitting by the road as Jesus is uh, going out of Jericho. Again, what we presume to be old Jericho. And they begin to cry out. Now, why is this? Because they heard, Matthew says, and, and uh, the other accounts tell us that uh, they asked what the commotion was about. Now, you can imagine Jesus is moving along here with a whole crowd of people, a multitude of people. So, you can imagine the, uh, the noise that, that's going on, the talking and the footsteps. And these two blind men, though they cannot see, they can hear. They can hear the commotion. And, and you probably also know that a lot of times when somebody loses one sense... Uh, the others kind of magnify. Um, we had a guy do some studio work for us one time, and he was blind, blind piano player. And he, he came in and sat down. One second, I guess, he played the piano, and he said, wow, these, these keys are really cracked. And, and we all looked at them, and, and they did have little tiny cracks in them that nobody there had. <laughs> Even the guy that it belonged to him in playing it hadn't noticed, you know. Um, but they're just more in tune with other, with the other senses a lot of times. So they noticed the noise, which was probably loud enough for anybody to notice. And somebody told them that Jesus of Nazareth, Mark and Luke note that specifically, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, here's where the desperation comes in. First of all, they're, they're totally helpless. Hopeless in terms of helping themselves. You, you cannot, if you're, if you're physically blind, how would you possibly make yourself see or see again if you had lost your eyesight? They have no hope in and of themselves. Today, um, even though we do have a, a, a tremendous, uh, tremendous improvements in technology and medicine, there are still many people who have lost their eyesight and cannot regain it. But in the first century, they didn't even have that hope. It's not like they can go down to the local ophthalmologist and, uh, you know, begin screening and find out what's going wrong and hopefully fix it. They're totally, totally helpless. But then they hear of this man that no doubt they have heard of before. They're specifically told, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and that gets them stirred up. That's why I say no doubt they've heard of him and what he's been doing. They've probably heard stories of how many blind eyes he had opened. And say that, that, so they know this is, our, this is our chance. This is our opportunity. And they don't want to miss it. I was reading this and thinking about it, thinking about uh, verse 30 when they heard Jesus passing by. It reminded me of the old, the old uh, hymn, gospel song, Do not pass me by. Pass me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And there's a, there's a picture here 
spiritually, I think. You can draw from that. And in fact, from the Gospel accounts, Jesus is constantly on the move, isn't He, in the, in the Gospels? So He says to people when they encounter Him or He encounters them, come, follow Me often. And some do, some don't. And He moves on. And those who don't, so often missed the opportunity. They were passed by. And there were others who just chose to oppose Him, and they were passed by. So, there's a spiritual application here as well. While on others Jesus is calling, don't be passed by. Don't, don't wait. <laughs> Cry out to Him for mercy. You might say, well, um, won't Jesus be as merciful a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? I would say, uh, I would say so. The problem is, you may not be here. And I may not be here. We don't know if we have one more second to live. Today is the day of salvation. Right now is the accepted time. Call upon Him while He is near. The prophet says, cry like the hymn writer and the blind men. Lord, Savior, do not pass me by. That's, that's a cry of desperation. That's where everyone who is brought to the point who realizes their sin, realizes their need of a Savior, all reach that point. They're desperate. And they cry out to Jesus. Matter of fact, if you look at verse 31, the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. Now, I'm not entirely sure what that's all about. I mean, maybe they just thought it was disrespectful. Um, a lot of times, of course, these, uh, uh, the blind people are beggars. Maybe, maybe they just were, you know, we don't want them bothering this famous rabbi and his company. So they, so they warned them. That's, there's, that's the indication of a stern warning. <laughs> they say, "Be quiet, you know, just just hush, leave him alone." And uh, that's th- that's the same kind of thing we'll often get from the world, isn't it? Don't be a fanatic. Just just quiet down, settle down. Listen, it's hard to do that when you know that you're facing eternal death. In John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress. The first thing that happened was that the, the main character there, Pilgrim, realized he's in a city that's going to be destroyed. God revealed that his city is going to be destroyed. And so he just breaks and runs. And people are trying to stop him and calm him down. You know, just, just be quiet. No, the, the city's going to be destroyed. And they all think he's a fool. And they won't listen to him. And it's a picture, it's an analogy of someone being awakened to the seriousness of their sin and understanding that they face final judgment before God. If you stay on this course without Christ, you perish. And so there's desperation. God, help me. Now, I already pointed out, they, they know something about this Jesus of Nazareth. That again is obvious here in verse 30. Uh, 
in verse uh, 31. Then the multitude, 30 and 31, because they refer to him as Lord and Son of David. Now, the term, the phrase Son of David especially, is, is, a, is a, a, a title for the Messiah, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. The term for Lord here sometimes is used like, like we use the word Sir. Uh, it can be just a term of respect. Uh, kind of like the, uh, the old country, you know, uses our word Lord, L-O-R-D. Um, but in this context, you can tell that's not what they mean by it because they also refer to Him as Son of David. They understand He's the Messiah. They understand this is the one, the only one who can help, the Deliverer. And so, the, the crowd tells them, warns them even, to be quiet, but they cry out, all the more. Verse 30, Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Now, let me... I find this so comforting. Let me, let me say this. You don't have to be a theologian to be saved. And, and boy, there are some great examples of this in the Scripture. Uh, one, one of the... the the, the, it's almost uh, comical one to me is in John 9. It's a great story. And uh, this man is being chided by the Pharisees for because, again, Jesus opened his eyes. Jesus healed him. And the man says just common sense stuff. You know, obviously the guy's sent from God because who ever heard of a thing like this? You know, open and blind eye. And the Pharisees are chiding him and they say, uh, you, you know, they, they, uh, they give him a hard, hard time about that. Do you think this man's a sinner? The, the guy comes back and he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. He's talking about Jesus. Now, that's pretty basic, isn't it? We all understand Jesus is not a sinner. I mean, we've read the Scripture. We have that. We know that clearly. Jesus never sinned. This man didn't, uh, didn't know for sure. But he said this, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. He said, I know this. I was blind, and now I see. <laughs> he knew something about Jesus' power. He didn't know everything about His person. He didn't understand perfectly the deity of Christ and the sinlessness of Christ. And He had a lot of things to learn and work through. And that's the way this person is as well. Uh, these people are as well. No doubt. But they know this. They can get help from Him. And I think they understand that they're unworthy of it because of their words. Have mercy on us. It's interesting, isn't it, that they're not demanding. But they say, Lord, Son of David, this is a desperate plea. Have mercy on us. And every sinner that God saves is brought to that point to where you realize that number one, you cannot help yourself. Number two, God is the only one who can help you. Jesus is the only one who can help you. And number three, you don't deserve His help. What He does, He does out of mercy. It's a gift. It's not earned. 
If we deserve salvation, then it's no longer mercy. And the Bible makes it clear that we don't deserve it. And we can't work for it. We can't produce it. It is totally the work of God. It is totally undeserved on our part. It is totally a free gift on His part. So they don't demand, but they do plead. Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. And again, they're acknowledging the fact that He's the Messiah. They're told to be quiet, quiet, and they cry out all the more. Continue to say. The, the tense of the Greek here is that they, they kept on saying, have mercy on us. They would not be quiet. And if you're brought to some kind of realistic awareness, acknowledgement of your own sin, and your destiny apart from Christ. In other words, that if you don't, that if Christ doesn't save you, you're headed for hell. If, if you are brought to an awareness of that, how can you be quiet? Verse 32, and I've always loved this. So Jesus stood still. He stopped, some versions say, or the ESV says he was stopping. He just, isn't that amazing? He's, first of all, think about, again, about the noise. He's moving along here, not only with the twelve, but with a whole multitude. And it has to be noisy, everybody talking. And somehow out of, out of all of that racket, he hears these two men, Bartimaeus and the other one. And again, friends, there is so much assurance in that. When you cry for mercy out of a desperate heart, Jesus hears and you've got His attention. He stops. He stops in His tracks. Secondly, this is what I call a gracious question. And I want you to think about this today. Verse 32. Jesus stood still and He called them. The other writers say that He commanded them to be brought or to be called. And he says this to the two men. What do you want me to do for you? That's a gracious question. God's, God's not some old long bearded, white haired man upstairs hoping that you'll give him the time of day. He's not a genie in a bottle that, you know, when you get ready, you can snap your fingers or rub the lamp or whatever it is and, and he will jump to attention. This is a gracious question. Again, it is undeserved. It, it ought to astound us, amaze us, that the King of glory would stop in His tracks at the cry of an undeserving sinner. Blind beggar, too, in this case, and say, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help you? Remember what we talked about last week? 
Jesus as servant? He said, I, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. That's because we can't do for Him. He does for us. He doesn't depend on us. We are totally dependent upon Him. So, this question, as astounding as it is, it may, it may seem a little out of whack. Say, well, He's the King of kings, Lord of glory. Why doesn't He ask what they can do for Him? You know, think not what you can do for your country, or what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, right? <laughs> think not what your Lord can do for you, but what you can do for your Lord. Because there is nothing we can do for Him. That's why He doesn't talk that way. This question is totally appropriate. We need Him to do for us. And so He says, What can I do for you? And they said to Him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. Now, just ponder His question and make it personal. Today, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And I'm not asking anybody to answer out loud so you can be totally honest with yourself and before God. What do you want Jesus to do for you? Let me just be honest for a minute. I remember a time when, quite frankly, and, and I, I say this with fear and trembling, and, and I'm, I'm thankful to God's grace, but I, I, I think if, I, if somebody had asked me that and I'd been totally honest, I might have said something like, I would like for Him to leave me alone. And I'm so thankful that He did not do that. I mean, I really say that with fear and trembling because He, I can show you places in the Scripture where He did do that. They said, Lord, don't you know you've offended the Pharisees? And He said, leave them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And when the blind leaves the blind, they'll both fall in the ditch. Leave them alone. That, that is probably... I, that's, I can't think of another thing greater. That's the ultimate judgment. That Christ would leave you alone, not only now, but forever. That you would say, Lord, just leave me alone, let me do my own thing. And that He would honor that. That means eternal damnation. Eternal separation from God. So if that's your answer today, oh, I wish He would just leave me alone. I wish, I wish I could do certain things without a conscience. I wish I could get rid of the guilt. And that's something that's, that, that is, uh, in our society today, uh, well, some try to deny that, you know, there really is Guilt. A lot of times, they, the, the pop psychology is that the only reason you feel guilty is because people have impressed certain things on your mind and tell you certain things are wrong, and therefore you feel guilty. It's just all conditioning. And what you need to do is, you know, just figure out how to block that out and get past that. No guilt. Guilt is like an alarm. When somebody's breaking in your home, intending to do you harm, you want an alarm to go off. You don't want it to be silent. I used to, I used to be 
so upset because my conscience bothered me over certain things. And looking back, I am so thankful. What do you want Jesus to do for you? You want Him to leave you alone? Maybe, maybe you just like for Him to fix certain things in your life. Well, I wish He would fix my marriage. You know, I wish He would fix my my car. You know, or something. I don't have. You know, I wish He'd fix my job. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd like to get a lot more an hour. You know, I'd rather be a somebody that makes a lot of money. Wish He'd fix all that. I mean, do you, do you think strictly in terms of here and now. In other words, where he would be sort of a genie, you know, just just give me three wishes and make my life comfortable. Or is the weight and reality of your sin real to you? So that spiritually speaking, you feel like a a blind man groping in the dark. So that you don't know what light is in a spiritual sense. You may be thinking to yourself, you know, spiritually, I'm there's no light. I'm colorblind. I don't see any beauty. I don't have any I don't have any zeal for life. I don't I don't have any real pleasure, just momentary pleasures here and there. But I'm just going through this thing blind. I'm just groping. I don't I don't have the light of hope. I don't see change happening in my life, and I don't see any hope for change. What I see when I look down the tunnel is not is not Light, what I see when I look down the tunnel is I'm going to get further down and be in the same situation. Total blackness. Total despair. I've been there. And that's where these men are physically. I think spiritually too. In other words, they understand their need. We, we need sight. Let's just take it back to the physical for a moment. What's, what is their need? The reason they're beggars, the reason they're poor, the reason they're out on the street, they can't see. What they need to live is sight. And that's the way it is, spiritually speaking, too. What we need in order to live, to really live, and to understand what life is about, to understand my purpose, to understand where I'm going, and what this whole thing's about. I need, I need God's light breaking in on my life, opening up to me all the color, all the beauty, so that I can see life and creation as He sees it. And so they said, Lord, that our eyes may be open. That's what that's what we want, Lord. We just we just want to see. 
You don't have to make me president or king or give me the best and finest chariot or or house. I just want to be made whole. In verse 34, Jesus had compassion. Touched their eyes. You know, if you come to the Lord with that kind of humility and that kind of desperation and honesty, asking for His mercy, I feel like I can, with, without fear of being wrong, assure you with everything that's within me, not, not because I'm smart or anything like that, but based on the Word of God, that I can assure you that His response will be compassion. If you say, Lord, what, what I need is sight. I need to see You. I need to see the glory of the Gospel. I need to see the sinfulness of, of myself for what it really is. I need to see my need for a Savior. Lord, I need, to, I need to see that You're not just a great teacher. That You're not some mythical character that somebody made up. But that You're the Lord of glory. I need my eyes open so that I don't grope anymore. So that I can see clearly. And Jesus had compassion. ESV says He had pity on them. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And they come very humble. And immediately, that word always catches my attention. It's an awesome word. Especially when you're reading through the book of Mark. Mark just uses it repeatedely. I mean, he just keeps you, it's like a movie that keeps you on the edge of your seat. There's always something happening Mark. Mark is telling an event and immediately, 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 you know, it just keeps you on the edge all the way through. And here we have it here in Matthew. Immediately their eyes receive sight. You see the passive nature of that statement? In other words, it's not a self-help program. And Jesus didn't give them ten steps or twelve steps or fifty steps. He didn't say, look, here's what you need to do. You need to go on a pilgrimage. Here's what you need to do. I'm going to make you a list and you do this for thirty days and you'll feel much better. Or take two of these and call me in the morning. He doesn't do any of that. He made them whole. They receive their sight. They couldn't do it. So he couldn't tell them how to do it. <laughs> he just had to do it. And he did it. It's a miracle. So how, how, do, how do they receive their sight? It's, it's a miracle. God did it. God did it. And if you look at the other two accounts, Jesus tells them that because of your faith, your hope. Mark says, your faith has made you whole. Jesus says that in Mark's account. And similarly, in Luke's account, your faith has made you well. 
He's essentially saying, you, you came to the right place with your problem. Your trust in me, the fact that you trusted me, that's what faith is, the fact that you trusted me has fixed your problem. So, we have to come in desperation, in humility, recognizing that we cannot help ourselves, and that our only help is Christ, and trusting Him to help us. The psalmist said, I look unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord. And there is no help anywhere else. One last thing. We'll close with this, and that is what I'm, I'm going to call here an unavoidable response, an unavoidable response to irresistible grace. <laughs> what, what do you want me to do for you, Lord, that we may receive our sight? He heals them. He touched them and healed them. They're made whole. Now they can see, and, and now they can see Him. You know, before they couldn't see Him, they heard about Him. What's going on? Well, Jesus of Nazareth is passing through. They couldn't see Him. They didn't know where He was going, what He was doing. Now they can see Him and they know where He's headed. And so what do they do? Follow Him. And brothers and sisters, again, that is the end result of a person who's been genuinely saved by the grace of God. Come to Christ in desperation, crying out for mercy. Christ saves that sinner in His sovereign grace. And then we follow Him. None of those pieces can be removed for genuine salvation. We come in desperation. Jesus does the saving. We can't save ourselves. And we follow Him. That's the unavoidable response to His irresistible grace. He touches us, makes us whole, and we follow Him. Well, we've seen a great example today of two persons brand new on this road. He's touched them. They can see. They probably don't know much. But I'll confess to you, I've I've walked with the Lord 25 years. I don't know much either. But I know this. I was blind. And now I can see. Let's pray. And then, stay with us just a moment, and and, uh, Autumn's going to come and sing. And then 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 I'll close out the service as soon as she's done. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that if there's anyone in this room today who does not know Your salvation, Your healing touch, Lord, maybe... Somehow, they've gone through life without encountering You, without meeting You on the road. Well, Lord, it would seem that this is the day that You are passing. May they 
not let you pass by without crying out to you for mercy. And Lord, for every Christian in this room, please enable us to continue to realize our own dependence upon You so that we continue to cry out, acknowledging our own helplessness and looking to You to sustain us every step of the way. Grant us grace to follow. Grace for every step. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.